0: What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from endyhackers.com, and you're listening to the Endy Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make their decisions at their companies? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful businesses. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with James Clear. James is an entrepreneur. He's the creator of jamesclear.com, and he's the author of a brand new book called Atomic Habits. James, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for uh, for having me on. It's exciting to talk to you.
0: Yeah, same. I have a ton I want to talk to you about, actually. Uh, you are many things in addition to what I just listed earlier. You're also a public speaker, an educator, a weightlifter, a photographer, a photographer, But this show is about building companies. So, I really want to hone in on your career as an entrepreneur. And I also want to talk about your new book, Atomic Habits, and how we can apply the principles found there to form habits that can help us build more successful businesses. So, let's start with you. How did you become interested in entrepreneurship?
1: Well, I didn't really have anybody in my family who was an entrepreneur. So, I didn't really have much to go on early on. And I'm not sure if it's this way for other entrepreneurs, but Looking back, there were a variety of things that I did early on that were fairly entrepreneurial, but I didn't know that at the time or I didn't have the language to describe it. So when I was in college, Amazon was uh, getting started and like had been around for a little while and you could, they had their marketplace feature and you could like resell your textbooks on there. So I Started reselling my own textbooks, but then I also like started doing it for everybody that was like on my floor and then in my dorm and would just keep like five bucks from each one or whatever. And that wasn't really a business, but it was kind of entrepreneurial. As a student, I it found out that you could design your own major. And so I looked at all the options and was like, I don't really like any of these. So I just like came up with a collection of classes that I thought sounded interesting and then like slapped a label on it and called it biomechanics. And it ended up being like a combination of the science classes that I was excited about. Academic Affairs Council approved it and that ended up being my major. So that's also fairly entrepreneurial to like look at the set of options and be like, well, I kind of want to create my own thing instead. So I had little decisions like that. And then when I was in graduate school, I worked in the Center for Entrepreneurship, and my job was to analyze venture capital investment in the region. And so I saw all these people starting companies, and that was where I kind of got the itch to really start my own thing. I was like, well, all these other people are doing it, like maybe I should try it too. So rather than get a job out of grad school, I uh, just tried to launch my own company and kind of floundered around for about two years, which now I refer to the period as the period where I incubated my skill set. But that was really the the time when I kind of like, honed my skills and learned what a website was and how to design one and what an email list was and how to launch product and all that type of stuff. And then in November of 2012, I launched JamesClear.com and I've been uh, running with that ever since.
0: I talked to a lot of founders who have this sort of drive to create their own path like you did. and Almost a disdain for for walking along the beaten path. Uh, As somebody who reads a lot and writes a lot about psychology, do you think that's something that you're just born with? Or is there something in your life that made you that kind of person?
1: Yeah, I don't, well, I don't know. It's hard to say from like a, a broad perspective, like what, what does that look like in society or how does it influence other people? I can only tell you, like from my own experience, I do think there's something genetic or personality-wise that makes me very curious or innately. Like I'm definitely a learner and ask a lot of questions and want to be curious. And I don't know how it's really hard to stoke the flame of curiosity if someone doesn't have that. There are ways to do it. It actually is. It's related to motivation in general. I actually write about this later in Atomic Habits, but there's this concept that I refer to as the Goldilocks rule, where it's this idea that humans experience peak levels of motivation when they work on a task of just manageable difficulty. So not too hard, not too easy, just right. And You can imagine this is like a student. You could, you know, reading skills are big when you're like in first grade or second grade or whatever. And so if you want to foster reading skills or an interest in reading in students, it's really important to have them like just on the edge of their ability where they're they're being challenged, but they're also experiencing enough success that they have a reason to come back and, and read again the next day. If you give them something that's multiple grade levels beyond them, then they just get, you know, dejected about it. And the same thing is true. You know, you could imagine playing like, tennis if you play against a professional well it might be cool for a second but it gets boring pretty quickly because you're gonna lose every point if you play against a five-year-old it's gonna get boring pretty quickly because you win every point but if you play against someone who's your peer who's like just kind of right around the same level as you you win a few points they win a few points you have a chance to win but only if you really try hard that's like the most motivating level to be at and so if you can maintain that then you can perhaps like stoke curiosity up a little bit or to keep you on that razor's edge. And in fact, many products, especially like video games are amazing at this. They're they're really good at keeping players right on the edge of their ability so that if you start to struggle, they'll offer you more power-ups and weapons and things like that. And if you're doing really well, then you face more challenges or difficulties. But the idea is to always keep you kind of like on that border, which keeps you engaged and curious and motivated and excited. But in real life, it's in the physical world, it's hard to maintain that. Uh, And that's doubly true for an entrepreneur who is building a business and, you know, like there is no roadmap. So keeping yourself right on the edge of your ability is really hard because you're not quite sure what you're working on all the time or what your abilities are or what you need to be focusing on the next moment. So, from a practical standpoint, it's difficult to do that. And if you don't have some level of innate personality that's interested in learning and being curious and kind of diving in, being a problem solver, then I feel like it would be harder. And again, you know, I can't speak for for everybody else, but I can say from my own experience, I I do think I'm kind of like wired that way.
0: Yeah, I've heard about other things that motivate people as well, in particular about an article recently about how entrepreneurs have a high incidence of being unemployable. People who think that they simply won't be able to get a job, or if they do, their skills will be undervalued, which I think can be sort of a motivating factor for starting your own business. Let's talk about this area, this period of time where you are sort of learning, learning what a website is, learning how technology works, um, and sort of becoming the person you are today. What do you think were the most valuable skills that you learned during this period?
1: Well, probably the most valuable thing was learning to trust myself. In a sense, entrepreneurship is just the ability to trust that you'll figure it out because you're constantly facing some challenge or problem, no matter where you're at on the curve. I mean, you could have a hundred million dollar business. So there's going to be some challenge that you're facing next that you haven't faced yet. And if you have the trust, the faith that you'll figure it out, then you have a reason to show up and keep doing the work. It takes a little while to, to learn that or to believe that about yourself. You need like some evidence, you know, you have to solve a few problems before you really are like, yeah, I, I can, I can figure that out. I can make that happen. And early on in your career, there's a surprisingly long amount of time when you're like, is this still really going to take, you know, like most entrepreneurs I know are still paranoid that like the bottom is going to fall out of their business and things are going to collapse overnight. And even if you don't feel it every day after you've been established for two or three or five or 10 years, uh, you still feel it every now and then. And so it's important to have that, that like trust and confidence in yourself. Then there are just a long list of skills and technical skills that I learned over those first two years. And this is true for any business. The the particular skills you learn differ based on what you're working on. But you go through this period where there are all these initial costs with starting up a business. And I don't just mean like financial costs, but also time costs. And those are maybe even the more painful ones to go through. So, you know, early on I had no budget. I, I didn't have any resources or money to draw from. So it's like, well, the website needs to get designed. I guess I need to teach myself web design. So, you know, there goes a few months or a, a couple weeks working on that. And it can be frustrating to deal with those problems over and over again. It's like, all right, we need to put a product up for sale. So now I guess I need to figure out like how to get a buy button on the site or I hear email lists are important. So I guess I need to learn what an email list is and how to build a form and all that type of stuff. And Again, the problems differ depending on what your business is, but it's particularly frustrating early on because you're like, man, I know if I just had a little bit of money to pay a programmer to do this, they'd get it done in 45 minutes. But for me, it takes 14 hours. So there are all kinds of things like that where your hand is kind of forced early on. And that was a lot of what those first two years were for me. They were just the period of building those basic skills that now, yeah, if I need to build a form on the website, it's going to take me five minutes, but there was a time when that wasn't true and I didn't even know what a form was. And so it just takes a while to learn all that stuff up front. The second piece of advice that I got early on that was really helpful was to try things until something comes easily. And I've since learned that this is basically what's called the explore-exploit trade-off. And the idea is that in the beginning of any process, there should be a broad period of exploration and uh, you could compare this on multiple timescales. So say like with your career early in your career, uh, you should probably try a bunch of different things to see what you like, get exposed to different things. And this is one of the ideas behind internships, but I don't think it should stop when you're in school. Uh, I, I think it, or after you leave school, I think it should continue through, you know, maybe the first decade of your career and you continue to experiment with things. And then whatever, turns out is best aligned with your interest and your skill set and your opportunities, maybe you start to exploit that one after you've had this period of exploration. But the same could be said for each project that you work on. So early on in the project, you should probably look for multiple ways to solve the problem. And then as you get closer to the deadline, you start to run out of time, you should probably shift your focus and start to exploit the best option that you found so far and actually get some results. And so I utilized that idea for the first couple of years. You know, I tried probably four or five different websites. I ended up having one that was about like small business marketing. And I grew that email list to about 20,000 or so. And that was kind of the first time that I tried to exploit a little bit or like double down on a particular area and put some of those ideas into practice because for whatever reason that seemed to, to go well. But then I knew pretty early on in that that I wasn't super interested in that site, I, but it was even though it was working a little better than anything else I had found at that time. And then in November twelfth, two 2012, um, I wrote my first article on jamesclear.com and the growth on that site for whatever reason. I mean, maybe it was because I was writing about something I really enjoyed. Maybe it was because I had a few years of experience and I like knew what to focus on now. But uh, maybe it was just the right time to write about it. But that site took off much faster than anything else that I'd worked on. So I think you know I started at zero, and then a year later I had thirty-four thousand subscribers, and then the next year a hundred thousand, then two twenty-five at the end of year uh, two or beginning of year three, and then four hundred thousand, and and on and on. So it's been um, it's been a process of exploration and then refinement, and it's kind of the phrase broad funnel type filter. Start with a really broad funnel, cast a wide net, explore a lot of options, read a ton of books, talk to a bunch of people, and then be very selective and filter really tightly about where you focus your your time and attention.
0: So there's a lot there. And I spend a lot of time talking to not just entrepreneurs, but people who are passionate about starting a company but haven't actually started yet. And one of the most common things that I run into is where do people draw the line between learning and acting? You know, at what point do you know enough to get started? At what point should you stop reading, stop listening to podcast episodes, stop um, buying books and actually decide what kind of business you're going to work on? It sounds like for you, those two processes, learning and acting, were intertwined. Uh, so how do you think about navigating that line and how did you shift from one to the other?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and I mean, it, first of all, inherently the balance between these two is challenging. I mean, this is one of the things that makes building a business uh, or learning and implementing anything difficult. You know, if I, if everybody knew what the ideal solution was, then it wouldn't be that hard. But the way that I think about it now, and this is again a little contextual for me, since I'm an author and a writer, and writing is kind of the backbone of my business, but. I would compare it to a car. So knowledge, learning about something for your business, kind of like filling the car up with gas. And you need gas to get around, but the point of going to the gas station is not to sit at the gas station and just pump gas into the car all day. You know, at some point the tank is full and there's nothing else to do. You're just pouring gas onto the concrete. So you need to get out and drive and implement a little bit. But if all you do is drive, then you start to run yourself dry at some point. And so I don't think there's ever a point where you just stop learning or stop uh, stop reading or stop talking to people or interviewing people, stop exploring new ideas. That needs to be part of the process in the long run, just like going to the gas station occasionally needs to be part of the process. I actually experienced this in my own business. So I, you know, I had a period early on where I read a ton and I just kept notes to myself before the site launched. I had like a Word doc that was maybe 60 or 65 pages long. And it was just sort of James's thoughts on habits. It wasn't anything specific. And I I had that document for a while. And then eventually I was like, all right, I should just publish something from this, right? Like I should just take a chunk of it and make one article out of it. And so working off of that document, that period of of reading and learning, I was able to come up with a variety of articles over the first year or two. And then at that point, by year in, I had uh, an audience. Now I had people expecting work from me and I thought, okay, now people are paying attention. Like I really need to focus more and really do great work. So I should just spend all my time writing. And I tried to do that. And actually the quality of my writing got worse. And I think it was because I was doing the equivalent of driving a car without filling it up with gas. It was like I was trying to put out all this knowledge, but I wasn't taking anything in. And so I actually need a balance of the two in order to perform at like an optimal level. And um, I think that in many areas of business, that's probably true, like the world shifts. And so you need to evolve with it. This is true, not just for writing and consuming new ideas so that you stay fresh and come up with interesting insights yourself, but it's also true for marketing and growing the business. I mean, the areas where I get traffic today are very different than some of the areas that I got traffic from even just two years ago. So as the internet changes, uh, you have to be willing to adapt with it. And part of that process is learning and consuming and making sure that you're staying up to date with what is changing so that then you can adjust your execution for next time.
0: I want to walk through the story behind how you were able to grow your subscriber base and become better as an author and make jamesclear.com into what it is today. But I also want to do so through the lens of habit formation. So let's switch gears for a second and talk about that. Your book is called Atomic Habits. What is an atomic habit exactly, and how is it different from a normal habit?
1: Hmm, Good question. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily have to be different from a normal habit, but I chose the phrase atomic habits for three reasons. So the first is the word atomic can mean uh, tiny or small, you know, like an atom. And that is one of the core pieces of my philosophy that habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of atomic is that it is the fundamental unit of a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And in the same way, if we, you can sort of think of habits as like the atoms of our lives. And if you, you build them on top of each other, or if you kind of layer these little 1% improvements or these small, easy habits on top of one another, you end up with a, a powerful system as a result. And I think that that actually is how you drive change, whether it's in a business or in your personal life. It's not like there's one magical habit that does it. It's the combination of a variety of habits organized in an overall system. And then the third meaning is that atomic can also mean the source of immense energy or power. And I think that that helps kind of describe the narrative arc of the book, which is that if you make these small habits and you layer them on top of each other and build a powerful system, you can end up with some really remarkable results in the long run. So that's that's kind of the meaning behind the phrase atomic habit.
0: One of the things that strikes me whenever I enter a conversation about habits is that most of the habits that we form in life are unconscious. We just sort of end up with the habits that we have and we find ourselves on these varying paths going through life. How do we make and form habits consciously? And how did you do that in the early days of learning the skills that you learned in order to become James Clear, the James Clear of today?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So in a sense, you can think about your habits as like the solutions to the problems that you face repeatedly in life. So let's say that you come home from work and you're stressed and exhausted. Well, that's a problem that you need to come up with a solution for. And so for one person, they might find that the solution is that they play video games for an hour. And for another person, the solution is they smoke a cigarette. And for a third person, the solution is that they go for a run for 20 minutes. And any one of those habits could solve the the problem that you're facing. But the point that you just brought up is that as we go through life, we're just kind of looking for a solution to the challenges that we face repeatedly. The original habit that you build is not necessarily the optimal habit for solving that problem or that situation. And uh, so then the question becomes, well, can you design that process rather than fall into it uh, without thinking? Can you be the architect of your habits rather than the victim of them? And that was one of the reasons why I thought writing the book would be important. And I, the punchline, of course, is that I think you can. Uh, and there is a framework that I lay out in the book for kind of designing any, any new habit. But to answer your question about how I applied this um, in my own business and, and work... There are a couple different areas. So, some of them are business related, some of them are not. A few of them that are outside the scope of the business, but impacted in meaningful ways are things like exercise. So, you know, weightlifting is really important to me. I go to the gym four or five days a week. And I have said many times that I don't think I would have a business if it weren't for the habit of working out. I don't think I'd be able to handle the psychological roller coaster ride that, you know, being an entrepreneur puts you on. Sleep is another huge one that you know, my my cardinal rule is that I don't cheat myself on sleep. The downside of that is sometimes I have trouble powering down. So that's a habit that I struggle with, is that I, I go to bed too late sometimes. But so if I'm working till midnight or one, then I'm not gonna wake up till later nine because I'm not gonna cheat myself on sleep. But anyway, we can talk more about that if you'd like. But the the exercise and sleep habits are kind of these overarching ones that really have a big influence on the work that I do. I think for many people. If you want to become more productive, you would see more value from getting eight hours of sleep every night than from like reading an article on how to double your productivity. And then there are a set of habits that are within the business. So the most obvious one is writing. So for the first three years that I worked on jamesclear.com, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. And it was really that writing habit that changed the trajectory of the business. And this is indicative of maybe a larger lesson about habits and rituals and routines and practice, which is that... Whenever we're starting a new project or trying to accomplish a new goal, it's easy to get focused on stuff that makes like the last 5% of difference. So people want to get in shape. They are like, all right, what running shoes do I need to buy? Or what knee sleeves do I, uh, should I get? Or which protein powder is the best? But like all that stuff makes like the last 2% of difference. The thing that makes the 98% of the difference is, are you getting your workouts in? Are you not missing workouts? Are you putting in your reps? And so the the real answer to the, the, like how do I get in shape is like well don't miss a workout for two years and then get back to me, and I think we could say something fairly similar for a lot of areas of business. Uh, you know like how do I build a big audience or how do I get a hundred thousand email subscribers or whatever? And it's like well you know I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday and I spent ten to fifteen hours on each one and then I did that for three years and. There are a bunch of strategies that are also involved or tactics about driving traffic and conversion and design and a bunch of stuff that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. But the thing that makes the biggest difference is that kind of core fundamental habit. So that's just kind of like a brief overview I relied on both early on and still today.
0: Yeah, I really want to get into this habit you formed around writing every Tuesday and Thursday. One thing you mentioned that I thought was very interesting is that we go through our lives developing solutions to problems. So what you mentioned specifically was you might come home from work exhausted, and the solution to that problem is you play video games for an hour. And I think what's interesting to me is that often we don't even think about it in these terms. We just feel a craving to come home and play video games, to come home and eat a slice of cake, to come home and watch TV or something. And we might not even be aware that it's solving any particular problem. We just feel like that's what we need to do because we know that it works. When you form your habit of writing Did that feel like a craving to you? Did you crave sitting down and writing, or was it something that you had to force yourself to do even after you developed a habit?
1: Mm, Yeah, so this is a good question, and it leads into kind of a deeper understanding of what a habit is and how it works. So in the book, I lay out this four-step process for, uh, for how habits work, and you can sort of think of it as a habit is a behavior that has been repeated enough times to become more or less automatic. And so if you want to describe habits appropriately, you probably need a framework that describes more or less all of human behavior appropriately. So I think that pretty much any action you take goes through what I would call these four stages. And so the first stage is there's some kind of cue, which you can just think of as like raw data uh, or a bit of information that gets your attention. You know, you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. Uh, So that's like a cue, a visual cue in that case. It doesn't have to be visual, but it often is. Humans are very visual creatures. The second stage is your interpretation of that cue. And this is like a key step that's often missed or glossed over uh, when people talk about habits. But how you interpret the cues in your life is heavily dependent on your beliefs, the people that are around you, and a variety of other factors, your current state. But your interpretation determines the response that follows. So, you know, you could imagine two people walk into a room and see like a pack of cigarettes on a, a table. For one person, if they're a smoker, they interpret it as, oh, you know, I have this craving, I should smoke. The other person, if they've never smoked, is like, oh, it's just packed cigarettes, like, it doesn't mean anything. So, same cue, very different interpretation. And as a result, very different response. So, there's the craving, there's the interpretation, which I call the cue, the data. That's the first step. Then there's the craving, which is the interpretation of the cue. Then the response, the actual behavior you take. And uh, finally, there's a reward, some kind of benefit from it. So to go back to that example I just used about the cookie. So you walk into the kitchen, you see a plate of cookies, that's Q. If you are, say, hungry, you might interpret that as, oh, I should eat one of those, it'll be tasty, it'll be sugary, it'll be good. Response, you eat the cookie, and then the reward is two things. One, you satisfy the craving that you had right beforehand, your expectation. And you also reinforce the behavior for next time the reward is sort of like a, a positive emotional signal in your brain. it's like, Hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time. And so if you have that positive emotional signal, you have a reason to repeat the process again. And so those four stages are kind of, they form like a loop. And as it gets reinforced, uh, the, as the loop gets reinforced, the behavior, uh, becomes tighter and more fluent and more automatic and so on. However, you can just as easily imagine a situation where you walk in and you see a plate of cookies and say, like you just finished uh, a big meal in the other room. And your current state is different. So now your prediction is different. You see it and you're like, oh, I'm stuffed. I don't want to eat anything. And so different prediction or different craving. And so you get a different response and then the behavior doesn't occur. Or in that case, the reward is that you don't eat the cookie or that you avoid the pain, so to speak, of stuffing yourself even fuller. But my point here is that When it comes to procrastination or bad habits or things that we'd like to avoid, it's often true that as soon as you see the cue, the craving arises naturally. But your question was, well, what about this writing habit? What about these good habits? You know, like, did you have this craving to sit down and write? And the answer is that early on, the answer is often no, you don't. Uh, and so it becomes important to focus on, you can think of sort of like each of these four stages. I, in the book, I have what I call the four laws of behavior change. And so there's one for each stage and each law is kind of like a lever. And when the levers are in the right positions, building good habits is easy. And when the levers are in the wrong positions, building good habits is hard. And so. If the craving doesn't arise naturally, well, now you need to focus on like the other ones. You need the cue to be really obvious, you need the behavior to be really easy, you need the reward to be kind of immediate and enjoyable. And if you do those, well, then maybe you can do it even if your craving or your motivation is fairly low.
0: So let's talk about you and your writing habit. I assume the cue for you, since you wrote every Tuesday and Thursday was, you know, maybe a calendar event or alarm or just knowing that, hey, today is Tuesday, it's time to write. How did you adjust? Sort of your craving, your response, and the reward so that you actually built this habit.
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of different things here. Uh, the first one is making it obvious, making the cue obvious. So for me, that means timing is, uh, it can be a crucial thing here. So I would write early in the morning or late at night. Rather than during like the middle of the afternoon or something, I just found that that time wasn't good because I was often getting interrupted or being asked to do other tasks to work on the business or calls or emails or whatever. So I wake up, I take a shower. Shower is kind of like my coffee. That's like how I wake up, get dressed, and then I get a glass of water and I immediately open up Evernote. And that's where, that's like as soon as I start writing. So the cue there is sitting down with my glass of water and opening up Evernote. As soon as I do that, Then I have a set of like, it's essentially like a a log of a bunch of ideas that I've just kind of brain dumped into this Evernote notebook. And there are maybe like 600 or so that are there right now. And I go through that list and start to see like, well, you know, are there four or five that are all about the same topic? And then I kind of lump them together. And that forms like the backbone of an article. And so from that kind of like longer draft or more expanded note, I can then use that to start to riff on the article and do some more research and fill in the gaps and so on. And then once it gets long enough, I move it into WordPress actually, you know, start revising the article and I start at the top and read a sentence. And if that's good, I'll read the second. And if that's good, I'll read the third. And at some point I get to a sentence that it doesn't sound good yet. So I'll edit that and then I'll go back to the beginning and start all over again. And that's the key part of the process for me. Like I don't really consider myself a very good writer. I think I'm a better editor. And so by the time I publish something, It's been revised probably, I don't know, 50 times, probably read through it 50 to 100 times from top to bottom. So that helps a lot. Then the reward is, and I I didn't realize how crucial this was until I wrote the book. With articles, the cycle time is very fast. I come up with an idea, I can work on it like that day or that week or whenever, Uh, start to build it out. And it's pretty much written within a few days and then it gets posted. And then I'm getting feedback almost immediately, right? Like uh, as soon as we email it out, I'm getting emails in my inbox within an hour. What people liked or didn't like, I'm hearing from people on Twitter and so on. And that feedback, that's kind of the main reward for me. Um, And uh, knowing that other people are finding it useful or helpful or insightful, that gives me the momentum or the energy or the reason to show up again the next day and do it all over again with the book, that was a real challenge because I wasn't sharing it with anybody. I was just writing for a few months. And then I was kind of in like a hole. I was in this cave and I would write something and nobody was reading it. So it wasn't until I had an editor help me a few months later that I finally realized, man, I just need feedback from somebody. It doesn't have to be thousands of people. I just need someone to tell me like, this is good or this is bad. So that was kind of a lesson there. And I think it's also a lesson about habits in general, which is that the more immediate you get a signal of positive feedback, the more likely the behavior will be repeated in the future. And if you don't have that immediate signal of positive feedback, you don't have much reason to return again, and that can get depressing or demotivating.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of founders get stuck on this reward step, especially if it's your very first business, you haven't really done much in the past. You could spend a lot of time building something or working on something and have absolutely no audience, no users, and have no real external motivation for why you should continue the slog into the future. How did you get over that hump in the very beginning of jamesclear.com? Before you had 400,000 subscribers, before you had millions of people coming to your website, was there a period where you would write an article and there were crickets and no response whatsoever?
1: Early on, I would get maybe one email from a reader a week. And that one email, I can, I can still think of one in particular. If that was enough to get me to show up again the next week. And so you really start to appreciate any bit of, encouragement that you get from people any signal that things are moving uh, in the right direction I mean the mo- one of the most effective forms of motivation is progress so you need some signal of progress to, to show up again and there are some things that you can do to make this easier like habit tracking is one that can be an effective use for for any habit but certainly applies to business as well like the most basic form of habit tracking is to just get a calendar and then each day that you perform a habit you put an X on that day. And I have a friend who's a, he's a freelance videographer. And so any day that he does 30 minutes of video editing, he puts an X on the calendar. Even if, you know, you can imagine you're working on a big project and it's taking a while and you're, you don't feel like you're making uh, progress. But if you have that calendar, you can look at it and be like, Hey, you know, like I have done this six days in a row now. And, um, so seeing that streak can be kind of motivating and in that sense measurement can be useful to kind of help you continue to move forward. But it's also informative for when measurement is not useful, which is you need to pick the right measure because you need to be able to, the point of the measure uh, in this case is to see progress. So you have a reason to show up each day. So if you pick the wrong measurement, like, you know, this is very common if people are trying to lose weight, the scale moves a little bit in the beginning. And then when the scale stops moving, it's actually the opposite effect. You get demotivated because the measure isn't moving. And so then it can be useful to shift to a different form of measurement, qualitative or quantitative that uh, shows that you're making progress, which is why people talk about things like non-scale victories, like, oh, my, you know, the scale's the same, but my skin looks better, or my mood is better, or I feel more energetic or whatever. But the, the key point here is that it's really important to feel some type of progress early on. And whether that's a habit tracker, or a little bit of feedback from a reader or a user, or just like encouragement from your social network and from people who are effectively on your team, other entrepreneurs that can be enough to get you to show up again the
0: next day. So let's draw draw things back for a little bit. And I want to ask you, how important overall is it to have good habits as a founder? I've talked to hundreds of founders over the years. Some of them have terrible habits. Some of them don't sleep at all. Some of them never exercise. Some of them will toil away in obscurity for months or years without any sort of positive reward or feedback whatsoever. Why is it that some people can succeed with seemingly bad habits or is it that they actually have good habits that we just have trouble identifying?
1: Well, there are a couple ways to answer this question. I mean, first of all, all humans are complex and have good and bad habits. So, you know, nobody's out there like a robot just knocking it down every single time. But the second thing is that habits are only part of the puzzle. So, you know, let's say that um the the two pillars of success or achievement that I like to think of are decision making and habits. And so Let's say that you decide to be an entrepreneur and you could decide to like open a local pizza parlor or you could decide to start a, a software company. Now, either way, you're going to be working really hard because being an entrepreneur is tough and it's going to take a lot of effort. But your initial decision effectively kind of like dis- determines the amount of leverage that's available to you. So you could imagine, for example, that like if you had this dotted line kind of mapping out from your initial choice, maybe the the pizza parlor would be like a little bit of a lower slope or a little bit less of a growth curve. And the software company might be more of this like hockey stick style growth, more scale and so on. But how much of the potential of that initial decision, how much of that leverage you capture is determined by your habits. So your, your initial decision determines the trajectory available to you. Your habits determine how far you walk along that path. And so it's possible that Uh, you know, you could start the local pizza parlor and if you had really killer habits, you could end up more successful than, um, you know, than the person who started a software company, but just didn't have good habits and couldn't execute. Now, of course, the, what we all want is to both make great decisions and have great habits. And so, uh, you know, if you're looking at founders who seem to be so flawed in some sense, I mean, again, first of all, we're all flawed, but secondly, It's possible that luck or randomness is driving a lot of that. Like maybe they just made a really great initial decision or they caught a really good break. And that's helping kind of like provide this tailwind. It's also possible that they have terrible habits in one area, but they have really killer habits in like a few key areas related to building the business. Maybe their sleep habits are awful, but their like sales and biz dev habits are amazing. And so there's a variety of lenses that you can kind of look at that problem through but I generally like to break it into decision making and habits.
0: Yeah, that's a very clean way to separate it. I want to talk a little bit about the decision making that you had at the beginning of your your website jamesclear.com. What was your vision for your personal blog at that time and why did you start it?
1: <laughs> well, early on I thought it was going to be more of a health related site, so I wrote more about strength training and I wrote about health. And I was also considering going to med school at that time. So I was like writing about the healthcare system and things like that. And it was all behavioral based or performance based, but it had more of like a health tilt. And then gradually, uh, I wrote a few articles just about habits in general and those did better. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll focus there a little bit more. And so I wrote a few more of these kind of like, I guess we'd call them more like big idea pieces And those did well. And so I was like, all right, maybe I should think about this a little more. And my MO or my mantra has always been to try to be like a bridge between the academic research and the, the scientific uh, scientifically based ideas and practical application in daily life. So, you know, I want to, I want the ideas to be evidence-based, but highly actionable and practical. And so I started writing more of that style and uh, that caught on better than other stuff. And so I started to shift my focus there. So And I didn't have the language for it at the time, but it was kind of that explore-exploit trade-off that I talked about earlier. Like I was trying things out, and then as I started to hone in on what worked, I just gradually shifted a little bit more of my energy toward that direction.
0: And I think what's cool about having a blog and writing, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but starting a SaaS business, trying to code an app from the ground up is tough because, in a way, you only get one shot. I mean, you can iterate on what you've built, but it takes a lot longer, whereas if you're writing, you can crank out an article, and like you said, 10 to 15 hours... And see what kind of response it gets. And then you know, two days later it's time to crank out another one and you can sort of iterate based on what you've done before very quickly. And so I think Explore Exploit ends up being a much more effective algorithm if you're writing than it does if you are building an app or doing anything else where the cycle times can take months rather than just days.
1: Yes, that's probably true. I mean, the explore exploit kind of approach, it's basically focused on experimentation and feedback cycles. And if you can I mean this is kind of what machine learning is based around, is that if you can run 10 million or 10 trillion feedback cycles, Uh, a human could never do that in their life, but a machine can become very good at chess or whatever by doing that within just a few days or weeks or however long it is. Uh, And by getting way more feedback cycles, the machine learns much faster than a human does. And so whenever possible, you want to apply kind of some type of similar framework to your own business and life. How can I test this in a smaller, faster, quicker way so that I can learn faster. Because if I can learn faster, then I can direct my resources to the right area more quickly. So, you know, I mean, this is part of the idea behind lean startup or minimum viable product and so on. But the, the idea is, I think, is sound and applies to a lot of areas of life, which is scale it down, test it as quickly and as cheaply as possible, and uh, try to get feedback and learn as fast as you can.
0: Yeah, I think one of the most common challenges that entrepreneurs run up against is that we often start off with this massive vision, this huge way we want to change the world, this product that we want to create that's going to be magnificent. And obviously it's going to take years to get there. And like you said, having an MVP, a minimum viable product, can help you take sort of a first bite off of that problem. And maybe it's not impressive, maybe it's not something that looks great, but it helps you cycle faster and course correct. And when you have a job, when you have a family when you have TV shows you want to catch up on, when you have hobbies that you want to do, it can be hard to find the time to work on something. How did you, in the beginning of JamesClear.com, find the time to do all this stuff? And how did you convince yourself to break things into sort of a small, small chunk rather than working on some massive business?
1: Well, it's a good question. I now I think about life as kind of like a series of seasons. So what season am I in right now? And what behaviors and areas of focus are best for that season? And so the, the short answer to your question is that, well, the way that I did it was by pretty much eliminating everything else. Like I just kind of like made it my life and focused on that. And there were only a few key areas, other areas that fit in there. So I already mentioned sleep and weightlifting. And then I had my girlfriend, now my wife at that time, who was getting some of my time but I didn't spend much time socializing or going out. Uh, I was busy working and building my business. I didn't spend time on other hobbies, really. I didn't have a television, so I didn't really watch TV. I am someone who has like a very wide range of interests. So it's not that I didn't want to do those things. I think all that stuff is fun and great. It's just that it wasn't the right season for it at that time. Similarly, and you know, some of this is just like luck with how my story played out, and I decided to become an entrepreneur earlier in life rather than later but I didn't have kids yet. And so that made a big difference. Whereas, you know, if in a few years I have kids, that's going to be a very different season. And so it'll probably be less career focused and more family focused. I still am applying some of these ideas now, you know, like I would love to learn an instrument or, uh, I can't read music. I'd love, i love to be able to do something musical, but it's not the right season for that because every hour that I put toward learning an instrument or learning how to sing or whatever, is an hour that I couldn't put toward building the business or being in the gym or doing some of the other stuff that's really important for me in this season. So, I mean, this is just, it's just about trade-offs and time and everybody faces those trade-offs, but I think you need to be strict about that. And the focus of life as like a series of seasons has helped me get over this hurdle of feeling like, Oh, I want to do it all now rather than being like, well, it's, it's just not the right season for that. I can get to it later
0: yeah I think that's something that's not talked about often enough because it's pretty easy to look at someone else who's super successful and who's doing a lot and assume that they're doing everything at once, assume that they're building their business and they're watching every episode of Game of Thrones, you know, and they're raising a family, and in reality, you know they're only doing one of those things. and it reminds me of you mentioning sort of the technique of habit tracking, where you set a goal and every single day you do it, you put an X on the calendar. I've done that myself, and what happened was eventually I said, well, why don't I track like fifteen different habits this way?" and instead of just one and at that point it all fell apart and i lost the motivation to do it cuz it was just too much.
1: Yeah, so you don't need to track every habit as you like found out yourself, but i think it's also important to you can bro- i broadly lump habits into two categories. So the the first category are like things that i don't know, brushing your teeth or tying your shoes or unplugging the toaster after each use, like stuff that you just do once you it's set, you don't really need to think about it anymore. Like i don't need a process of continuous improvement for tying my shoes. Then there's a second category of habits, which are things that actually are really important to you and you do want to continue, continuously improve. So, for me, it's probably things like weightlifting, photography, and writing. And those areas, the key distinction between the two is that those are the areas that you should track and have a process for like reflection review so that you can refine them. But you don't need to like measure and reflect on uh, every habit that you're trying to build.
0: One of the things I think. That's interesting about interviewing you is that most people that I interview are, you know, first name, last name of whatever company. So Austin Allred of Lambda School, but you're just James Clear, perhaps of (laughs) jamesclear.com. The business that you build for yourself is really kind of a personal brand. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of going that route versus building a business that's entirely separate from yourself? Well,
1: the, the, one of the advantages is a very, it's good for someone like me who has a brain that likes to jump into a bunch of different areas. So right now I just finished this comprehensive book on habits, but if in a year I want to write a book about decision-making or consciousness or uh, some other topic that's interesting to me then I can do that fairly easily. You know, like it's not it's not betterhabits.com, in which case I would be kind of locked into, you know, like one type of work or one, one type of topic. So a little bit more flexibility that way. I ended up doing it not for that reason, though. I did it because I had this spreadsheet of like 300 or 400 names that I had brainstormed for the the business like what the site should be called and you know of course some of the issue was the dot-coms weren't available and then some of the other names just weren't that great i showed a top 10 list to some of my friends and um the feedback was pretty much unanimous people were like yeah really none of these are good i was like yeah i agree so i was like well if seth Godin's name is good enough for him or oprah's name is good enough for her like i'll just go with my name and figure it out later and so in a lot of ways i'm still just figuring it out later but The disadvantages, in the beginning, there is a little bit of a disadvantage with not having a brand because a well-chosen brand can help kind of drum up the initial support uh, easier. A well-designed brand gets people to identify with it because of what the brand stands for. And so the right name can help with that and can kind of like pull people in early on. However, in the long run, I don't really know that it makes that much of a difference because in the long run, any business's brand is actually the work that they do and not the name or the slogan or other stuff. And so in a sense, as long as I keep putting out articles that are of high quality and that are scientifically minded and that are insightful and actionable, that becomes my brand because that's how I show up and do the work every day. So it takes a little while to get over that hump. Uh, early on because you don't have the the body of work to be evidence of that but i think in the long run that's not that big of a a downside yeah but there are definitely pros and cons
0: so let's talk about this work that you do because being sort of a, a personal brand it's not as simple as you make a product and you sell it for recurring revenue you're doing all sorts of different things you're super curious you got multidisciplinary interests how do you make money as a personal brand
1: yeah. So that's a good question. And actually it made me immediately think of one of the other disadvantages. And this is, this depends on what your personality is and what you want out of the company. But I actually, it sounds weird for someone whose name is the the name of the brand, but I don't like I have no interest in being famous I don't want to be known I had there's like one picture of me on the website it's kind of hard to find they're like no it's just a very clean site just white background with black text like all of my pictures on social media are me from like very far away you can't see my face like I, I'm not interested in in being I'm not doing it to be famous I really want the challenge is I want the ideas to be famous I want the ideas to be well known and well used but I don't really want to be at the center of it myself. So that's definitely a disadvantage of a personal brand. And it's hard because like, what are your options? You could, you could write anonymously, I guess, um, which is a, an interesting option, but like a little bit of a challenge with building the brand around that. Cause people, I think there's a little bit of a resistance to anonymous brands. People kind of want something to latch onto. They want to be able to put you in a box and understand it. You could, you could write for another company. Uh, you know, you could write for the Atlantic or the New York times or something. But there's you know then you're not building your own thing, you don't have control. So anyway, that's kind of kind of one of the challenges. But the answer to your question, what are the revenue streams? How does a, a personal brand make money? There are a lot of options that other people are pursuing, but I'll tell you the, the three or four that we focus on. And so first one, we've already talked about book deal. Uh, so I'm publishing this book with Penguin Random House, which means I get in advance and then you know, if the book sells well, I'll be making money from each copy and so on. I have a course called the Habits Academy, which is sort of, like the premier training platform for individuals and really organizations that are looking to build better habits in their employees. So if you have a team that's looking to foster that, the, the Habits Academy is where I would appoint them. The book is a great starting point as well, but the course is more focused toward that kind of work. Then I do speaking events. So I don't want to be on the road a lot. Uh, I do about one speaking event per month. I think you know after the book comes out, if I could raise my rate and maybe like cut that down and do like one every other month, something like that. that's probably kind of what I have in mind. So I'm pretty strict about that already. I've experimented with advertising and sponsorships. I hate ads from a user standpoint. Uh, I don't like what they do to the user experience. I really like having a clean site. So I keep that fairly minimal, even if we are testing it. But that's one thing we've played with. And then the fifth option, the final area of revenue is affiliates. So I have specifically said, blanket statement, I'm not doing any affiliate deals for online courses or products or anything like that. The only thing that we'll do it for is Amazon or like um, like a physical product, like a camera or something like that. And so, if I mention a book in an article and somebody buys the book on Amazon, that's like eighty cents for me. But if you get two million visitors a month or whatever, then that can add up. So, those are those are kind of the four or five main areas of revenue.
0: Yeah, it strikes me as a, a lot of different things that you're doing. It reminds me a little bit of the earlier days in Andy Hackers, back when I used to try to generate revenue from the site and the community. And I also had like four or five different ways of generating revenue. How do you keep it together? How do you focus and decide which area to pour more of your attention to at any given time?
1: Well, it's important to remember that a lot of those don't require ongoing work. So, you know, take like the affiliate links. Well, once I write the article, it's not, I'm putting the link in there anyway. It's not really that much more work to just grab the affiliate version from Amazon. Um, So, and then I just click post and then I never think about it again. With speaking... I do it for that day, but there's no follow-up. I don't do ongoing consulting or anything like that. And then I just have a speaking page on the site, so I'm not spending any time doing sales or like outreach. People just they come through the site to me, so there isn't much work for that. The only ones that really require ongoing work are the book and the course. And uh, that's fine, because the main work that I do is writing uh, or teaching, in a, in a sense. And so... You know, I'm always writing new articles and this just happens to be the the book that I've been working on. And then, you know, at some point I'll probably shift and focus on a new topic. So it may sound like a lot, but it's actually really not that much when it comes to working on it day to day.
0: You talk in your book about how having an accountability partner can really improve your ability to form good habits. And I think in the land of entrepreneurship, that person is most likely to be a co-founder who actually helps you start and run your business. How do you think about the trade-off between being a solo founder? and potentially bringing someone in to work with you as a co-founder?
1: Mm, I think if you find, it's, it's like hiring. So, you know, one thing I've learned is I've been hiring for my own business is that making an all-star hire will make your life five times easier. It's so worth it. But making a bad hire will actually make things worse. And I would say that co-founder is probably like that. Like if you want to create the hierarchy of building a business, it's probably like have a great co-founder is at the top then be a single founder is underneath that and then have a bad co-founder is like at the bottom of the rung. So it can either be way better or way worse. And early on, I bet there are all kinds of benefits if you have a good co-founder, you know, like you have somebody else who's motivated. So it's kind of like having a workout partner, you know, like you might both not feel like working out every day, but one of you will probably feel like putting a workout in each day. And so that's enough to get the other person on board. So it's good for motivation it's just great to have somebody else for sanity to like go through it and talk about that. I mean, most entrepreneurs have somebody they got to talk to, you know, like a lot of masterminds between entrepreneurs end up after the first, like, I don't know, five or six months where you, everybody gets a feel for their business and then you talk through things. And like at some point it gets, it just kind of turns into like a therapy session where ever all the entrepreneurs are just talking to each other about what it's like to be an entrepreneur and what they're struggling with and, and whatever and that's just because people need that. So if you can have a co-founder then you kind of get that like implicitly or automatically. And then you also get this division of labor, which is great. I mean for me early on I had those challenges like I you know mentioned earlier it was like, well, guess I need to spend 30 hours working on this web design project even though, you know, if you had a co-founder that was good at design or like a programmer or something like that, well then they can do that and that's like right within their wheelhouse of expertise and you could just focus on sales and marketing or something else. So the division of labor aspect helps a lot, especially when resources are thin, uh, which they almost always are at the beginning. So I think there are a lot of advantages, but the downside is that like any team, one bad personality can be toxic for the entire culture. And so if you don't get the right person or if people have competing priorities, then it actually just ends up creating additional friction and building the business. Then you end up spending all your time on stuff that isn't even really the work. You're like, Battling over founder shares or discussing like the direction for the company, or you're not even servicing customers anymore. You're just creating like all this internal conflict. Unfortunately, I've seen it play out that way just as often uh, for my friends as it has played out favorably. So when it works, it can really work well, but there's definitely a risk.
0: How do you, as a solo founder, find people to hold you accountable?
1: I guess it comes from a couple different areas. Like I, I mean, first of all, I like, I'm just, I'm not perfect. There's a lot of places I should be more accountable to that. I'm not one of the biggest issues in my particular business is that I'm the bottleneck for a lot of stuff. So, you know, like I know Lindsay, she's like kind of my, uh, my marketing master and she like runs all of our our marketing stuff and the book launch and like a lot of other things. And, um, She's great, but man, like it sucks for her if she's got a bunch of projects she needs to work on and she's still waiting on me to get done with like the latest article or the latest, you know, like piece of content or something. So in a sense, I'm accountable to my employees and my team, so that helps a little bit the expectations of the rest of the team. The readers for me, again, this is like a little bit of a unique dynamic because of my business, but I send out an article to 400,000 people. So I the the quality of my ideas is constantly being held accountable by uh the audience. If I get something wrong, <laughs> well, I've come to the conclusion that it's impossible to write an article and please 400,000 people. You just can't yeah. do it. But it actually it ends up benefiting me in the long run because if I get something wrong, I hear about it immediately. So I can I can update the article pretty quickly. But also I hear about a lot of things that are like on the periphery of what I write about that end up making my future work better. So like I just wrote a, a, one of my recent articles, the whole reason that article came uh, was because I wrote a previous article that a reader responded to and said, you know, this is interesting, but I feel like you missed the boat on this. I feel like you missed this point. And I shared a little bit of research and asked like a, a really good question. that kind of got my wheels turning and so then I was like, well, this should be a whole separate thing. And so then I end up writing that article and that happens a lot. It's like, you forgot this piece of research or, you know, what about this example or uh, have you thought about it from a different angle? And that's super helpful. And ultimately, um, you know, I've mentioned this already, but I care less about uh, me being well-known or anything like that. I care more about, am I sharing useful ideas? And so ultimately that's probably the best form of accountability for me is that the, the audience kind of, holds me to that standard.
0: Speaking of your audience and your users, how do habits and habit formations play into the way that you design your website, the way that you write your articles? How much thought do you put into your audience developing a habit of reading the stuff that you put out? The short
1: answer is a lot. Uh, I give a lot of thought to the reader experience and there are a couple different things that uh, that I do that are sort of direct applications of uh, the concepts that I cover in the book. So, you know, I mentioned those four stages earlier and uh, the four laws of behavior change. And one of the, the laws is to make it obvious. So you want to make the cues that you're asking people to, to engage with as obvious as possible. Well, I do that all over the website. Um, I kind of run every page that's on the website. I run it through two filters. So the first filter in my mind is uh, a returning visitor. If someone's been here before and they're coming back, what are they going to be looking to do quickly? And how can I make that as obvious and as easy as possible for them to do? So, you know, I think there's that famous web design book. It's like don't make me think, but that it's basically that idea. You know, like how how can I show them what they need without them having to think about it or dig around for it? And then the second filter is a new visitor. So if someone you know comes across an article for me on Facebook or Twitter or something and they click through what are, what is that person for their very first engagement with the site? What are they looking to do and how can I get out of their way and make it as easy as possible for them to do that? That's kind of an application of what I call the third law of behavior change, which is make it easy, which is all about reducing the friction associated with your desired task. So there are all kinds of little ways that I think about that when it comes to how we're laying out an article or how we're laying out the, uh, really the information architecture of the site And even the email newsletter itself, like when it shows up in someone's inbox, uh, how can we make that as delightful of an experience as possible? And in many ways, design is, it's kind of like an invisible service to the reader. You know, the the reader is probably never going to say that themselves. They're not going to say, "Wow, the line height in this paragraph is like really easy to read or the width of your content feels like it's just right for my eyes on the screen. But by doing that stuff and a million other little things, it ends up making the overall experience really enjoyable. That ends up making the habit of reading my articles as satisfying as possible or contributing to that in some way. And that of course is what's going to get someone to come back. So there are a lot of ways to apply that. I actually put together an appendix uh, for atomic habits that's specifically about like how to apply the ideas to business. And I go over some more examples in that, but um,
0: but yeah, I definitely
1: have used it in my own experience.
0: Yeah. I think there's, a lot of correlation between founders who spend a ton of time thinking about things from their readers or their audience or their users' perspectives and how successful their blogs or their products or their apps end up being. Because ultimately, like, the things that we assume people care about are often wrong. And if we don't put that explicit time into thinking about what they want, then it's really easy to just totally miss. Well,
1: people will only repeat an experience if it's enjoyable. And the things that make an experience enjoyable are not only the obvious things like, does this help me make money or does this help solve the problem that I'm coming to you for or whatever, but also whatever friction is associated with that task. I mean, if it, if it helps you, but God, there's so much friction uh, with using this product, then it kind of like, it's, it's like a leak in a bucket. It takes away from the value that you're ultimately able to hand over to them. And so as many of those leaks as you can plug and as as seamless and frictionless as you can make that experience, what ends up happening is that people feel like, oh my gosh, this was such an amazing positive value. I got to come back here and read this again or use this again or whatever. It's really only with a very detailed focus on the experience that you can end up creating something that helpful.
0: One of the things I think is challenging about being a founder in terms of habits is that we tend to form a habit of following the path of least resistance. As you said, we like to do things that are enjoyable. We don't like to do things that are hard. And it turns out that starting a business is hard. And so we end up gravitating towards what's easy and we stick to what we know. People who are great at sales will often neglect marketing. People who are good at Facebook ads will often neglect you know, ranking high in the Google search rankings. Um, People who are skilled designers might overemphasize the importance of design while neglecting other important things. How can we as founders improve here and break the bad habit of just doing what comes easily
1: the common theme with all of those examples that you just gave was that it felt immediately satisfying to do that thing because you knew you were good at it so you know this is um what i call the cardinal rule of behavior change which is that behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided and so it's really about the speed of how quickly you feel successful as something that gets you to, to come back or to, um, to enjoy that experience. So what you need are little bits of reinforcement that give you a reason to show up again and work on the thing that feels hard to you. So if you're, if you're avoiding it, it's often because you don't think you'll feel some kind of progress or satisfaction after working on it. So there are a couple of things you could do. I mean, there are external reinforcers, um, that you can use. But the ultimate form of this uh, is internal reinforcement or reinforcing your desired identity. So let's say, for example, that, that you're a, uh, a person who's really strong with design. And so you tend to overvalue design and you tend to not spend enough time on uh, sales and outreach and business development. Well, really what we're talking about doing here is having a little bit of a shift or an upgrade or an expansion of your identity from someone who currently identifies as a good designer to someone who in the future identifies as a good salesperson or someone who's good at partnerships and business development. And whatever beliefs that you have about yourself, and this is one of the reasons habits are so important, you often hold those beliefs because of the evidence that you have for them. So it's kind of like every vote or every action that you take is like a vote for the type of person that you think that you are. So another way of thinking about it is your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So if you... Every time you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time you sit down to write a blog post, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. Every time you go to the gym, you embody the identity of a fit person. And eventually, this is kind of like a two-way street. Once you build up enough evidence and cast enough votes for that type of identity, you have a reason to show up and do it again. It's like, hey, I'm a fit person. I, I, like, I want to go to the gym because that's who I am. And that's really the ultimate uh, form of behavior change. It's kind of like true behavior change is identity change, because it's, it's one thing to say like, I am, or I want this, but it's something very different to say, I am this, you know, like I am this type of person. Um, I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Well, once you believe that about yourself, then going to the gym feels kind of easy. You're really, in a sense, you're not even like pursuing behavior change. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe that you are. And so the question is, well, how can I get there? You know, if I view myself as a designer, how could I do that and, you know, view myself as the type of person who makes two sales calls every day or something like that? That's where small habits become really useful because they are the method through which you embody this identity and the method through which you cast votes and build up evidence of being this new type of person. And so if you can do that in very small ways, it doesn't have to be a lot. Um, You know, like I have a friend who, is a writer and his habit is just to write one sentence per day. And it sounds like nothing. You know, it's like, would you do just five pushups a day? A lot of people be like, well, no, why would I do that? It's not going to get me in shape. But the point, sometimes it's not really about the result. It's more about reinforcing being that type of person so that even if you have a super busy day or things are crazy and it's not working out for you, you can still write one sentence or do five pushups push-ups and reinforce the identity of, I'm the type of person who writes every day, or I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And the same thing applies when building a business. You can make just one sales call a day, but each time you do that, you're reinforcing the identity of, I'm someone who works on business development every day. And eventually, it's kind of like adding a little grain of sand to that side of the scale, and you start to tip the scales in your favor and actually believe that about yourself and upgrade and expand your identity to include a new skill that you didn't previously identify with. So, I think that that's maybe the the practical and long-term way to uh, to achieve that kind of change.
0: Yeah, that's great to be able to look back in the past and see that you did something for a few months in a row or a few weeks in a row and say, "Okay, I am the type of person who's done this because I did it in the past and so it can't be that scary to do it right now."
1: I think that's an important distinction between, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say things like fake until you make it, but fake until you make it actually it asks you to believe something about yourself that you don't have evidence for. And a belief that you don't have evidence for, I mean, there's a word for it. We call it delusion. So (laughs) it's really important to have habits like that that accumulate evidence of that, that as you just said, I've been the type of this person in the past because now you have something to root the new belief in or the new identity in. And so I think that's probably the ultimate reason that habits really matter. I mean, we talk about habits a lot for like, Oh, they can make you more productive or help you sleep better or make more money or reduce stress. And all those external results are fine. Like that's all true. But the real reason that habits matter is that they're the most effective method for upgrading and expanding your identity, for believing something new about yourself, for like fostering a new sense of self-image.
0: Well, I think that is an excellent answer to end the podcast on. James, thank you so much for coming on the show, talking about your book, your journey as an entrepreneur, and sharing your wisdom around forming positive habits can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about you as a person and also the things you're working on and where they can buy your book? Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. So the book is called atomic habits and you can find it at atomichabits.com. And also on that page there, there's a secret chapter that's not included in the the book. There are some audio by uh, chapter by chapter, audio commentary uh, guides and files for me where I talk about like why already chapter and thinking behind it. There are a few bonus chapters, like the appendix I mentioned on how to apply the ideas in the book to business and how to apply the ideas to parenting. And then just a bunch of like worksheets and templates and things for implementing the ideas that are in the book. But uh, anyway, all of that is at AtomicHabits.com.
0: Thanks again, James. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.